Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, virtual reality is the future, and we make fun of King again. Also, there's a new Duke Nukem. Killer Instinct has a new developer. Plus, we talk to Khan Gao about To the Moon soundtrack, and Heidi McDonald discusses attractive video game characters. And George Buckingham lets us know how to have a good time with the wild rumpus. But first, Facebook wants to put VR on your face. So in a totally unexpected deal, Facebook has purchased Oculus Rift, the makers of the very popular, if by me, that we mean mostly with developers, VR headset for $2 billion. $2 billion. No, okay, wait. Facebook recently acquired Instagram for $1 billion. And WhatsApp, what's, WhatsApp. I can't pronounce that. Yeah. For $19 billion. So, and then with this, another $2 billion, they've spent about $22 billion on um, random access. Uh, and their net worth is $27 billion. So they have almost spent their whole net worth <laughs> on, a, on weird acquisitions. And for some perspective, the New York Yankees are valued at $2 billion. The, uh, so Oculus is one Yankees, two Instagrams, one-tenth of WhatsApp. <laughs> That's a really weird scale. Yeah. But I guess all... that's the future we now live in. Future of VR. Uh, let's do some catch-up, I think, just to r- tell people what the Rift is. Because we say popular, but nobody actually uses this. It's not consumer level at all. No, no. This is entirely de- this developer inside baseball. So um, in 2012, Oculus launched a Kickstarter campaign to create an initial prototype of their VR headset. They asked for 20 uh, sorry, for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and ended up getting two point four million. So that let them rele- build and release their Crystal Cove prototype uh, to fanfare. Developers and reporters mostly got uh, dev kits to play around with. They received eventually, after a year or so, I think in, in mid twenty thirteen, they received uh, funding from some venture capitalists looking to invest. And a few months ago, as we talked about, uh, id Software's John Carmack, creator of Doom and Quake. Uh, joined Oculus to develop games for them, I guess. Yeah, and so they've been working on a couple prototypes. They re- they've announced that a new one's coming out fairly soon. Yeah, they have a second prototype that uses a camera for head tracking that's much closer to the final retail build. It is $350 for this prototype, though. T- to be fair, I think the original prototype was about 300 itself, so yeah. it's not like they've uh, they've t- changed the price all that much. Um, right now, the only games available for it are really demos or... I think Hawken works with it. Yeah, like... There are some mech simulators, and Eve has been working on a flight sim, more a space sim, yeah, more or less. Valkyrie. Yeah, um, but as it stands, there's not much for it, and it's mostly it's a developer kit. You you can actually buy one if you want, but it's not recommended. There's not much for it. Yeah, unless you unless you yourself are developing games for it, or are really into um, things where you can look up the skirts of anime girls. Uh, <laughs> there's really not much for you. But now they've been bought by Facebook. Now they've been bought by two Facebook. billion dollars for, as we said, prototypes. And nothing close to a retail build. They haven't even... They've been apparently working on putting together a couple launch games for the system mm-hmm. and have been working closely with several developers. They've uh, they've mentioned a few, but the whole thing is, right now there's, there's really nothing for them. There's, no. They're, a, they're very popular with individual... with a lot of people in the video game industry, but there's not much buzz outside of that. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. In Mark Zuckerberg's official statement, he said that, um, you know, he sees VR as the future of games... Uh, but in a, in a quote, he says, After games, we're going to make Oculus a platform for many other experiences. Imagine enjoying a courtside seat at a, at a game, or studying a classroom of students and teachers all over the world, or consulting with a doctor face-to-face, just by putting on goggles in your home. Which is, like, that seems like the bad end of VR. <laughs> that seems like everyone gets stuck in their homes, no one goes to anything, I'm in my, I'm in my bedroom just putting on my Oculus headset and... Um, Deciding that walking into the Facebook net. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll get we'll get into this, but Facebook literally needs wants eyeballs, and now they now they have a way to graph those eyeballs to to. They, yeah, they are work. pumping. They are literally pumping images into your eyeballs now. Uh, from Oculus's official statement, quote: "This partnership is one of the most important moments for virtual reality. It gives us the best shot at truly changing the world. It opens the door to new opportunities and partnerships, reduces risk on the manufacturing and work capital side, and allows us to publish more for VR made for VR content." and lets us focus on what we do best, solving hard engineering challenges and delivering the future of VR. Which is sort of them just saying, we have $2 billion now, holy crap. Yeah, yeah, no, it's them freaking out. It was surprising how much money. I mean, $2.4 million versus um, $2 billion is such a huge That's, Yeah, that Kickstarter campaign is such yeah. a drop in the bucket. Yeah, by comparison to what they have now, they have, like, this is, this is ultimately the, the, the best thing about this deal, is that Oculus now has a lot of money 
to test out their product. Right. Assuming that they have a bunch of smart guys, and they do have John Carmack, who will be smart, rapidly prototype, and be able to put out a product that at the consumer level will be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, this could be a really smart move, and then Facebook will be able to take advantage of it in the long run. Um I mean, I, I, they've, from what they've said, they're still going to be focusing on games for now. Yeah, for now. I mean, they're going to leave them alone. They've pretty much left Instagram alone. Yeah. So you can kind of trust them on that. Uh, but from the comments of the two, of their two-year-old Facebook page, which has now been flooded with comments, uh, quote, So where does one go to get their $300 back? I think we as backers have a right to the product, too, and I'm not okay with my money being spent on technology that goes into the hands of Facebook. A lot of fans aren't pleased with the buyout. The idea is that they kickstarted them and thus they own some portion of the company, sort of like an investment. Also, Facebook creeps them out. Yeah, well, like, I think that's a fundamental mis- misunderstanding of, of what, what Kickstarter, Kickstarter is. is. Yeah. yeah, It's basically a donation bucket. Like It's, it's a pre-order system. Yeah, yeah. Like, here's a thing that costs a lot of money to make. Um, I, can't, I, I can't make these one at a time. So I'm gonna if I can make them in bulk at like a ten thousand. Um, here's how much it costs to make those ten thousand, and um, let's see if we can get enough people together to buy that. Right. Um, but one backer who was pretty creeped out uh, back to the ten thousand level, and his name is Marcus Notch Person, the developer of Minecraft. And uh, was it by Notch's own admission? Um, he was going to be making a scaled down version of Minecraft. For the VR headset. Yeah, like a, a free version, sort of what you can get for the Raspberry Pi. There's a Minecraft Pi edition you can download for free. But he freaked out. He did yep. not like He did not like the idea of working with Facebook. Yeah, his quote from his blog post, quote, I will not work with Facebook. Their motives are too unclear and shifting, and they haven't historically been a stable platform. There's nothing about their history that makes them me trust them, and that makes them seem creepy to me. And I did not cheap, chip in ten grand to b- seed a first investment round to build value for a Facebook acquisition. Meanwhile, Cl- uh, Cliffy B, Clifford Blazinski, a backer himself, called, called Notch a pound kid so cliffy b being the the guy who ran um epic and gears of war for a fairly long period for a fairly long time and now is working on a gritty reboot of jazz jackrabbit i don't know yeah he's he's uh, he's apparently doing something anyway the i think people again they fundamentally misunderstand what the kickstarter investment was um Mm -hmm. The fact is, Notch they, did pay for yeah for yeah. first round. He was paying for a prototype, which would look good to venture capitalists, which would in turn give them value proposition to tell Facebook that hey, people want us, you should want us. Yeah, yeah, and like that's again, all it is. It was they weren't they were the company was already founded. They were just funding a prototype. Yeah, it wasn't like if you had come up and if Notch had come up and say hey, I will invest one million in your company, then he would have a right to complain. But all he did was he just paid for a. Um, he just paid for a very expensive VR headset and then decided to... Yeah, he uh, paid $10,000 for a trip to Oculus's studios and a VR headset. Yeah, like, ultimately, I don't think there was all that much... Um, there was all that much he really invested. I mean, mm-hmm. we just said that $2.4 billion, $2.4 million was a drop in the bucket compared to Bears $2 million. Imagine how little 10000 means, especially yeah. in this scale. And, and to be fair, I mean, I don't kind of turned my nose up at him for canceling his game. Again, it's not like he was going to make any money off of it. Yeah. And I can see why you wouldn't want your game to be associated with Facebook. Yeah, no, I like, can understand. That is historically an unstable gaming platform. Yes, and to be fair, I mean, I think there are a lot of anxieties around Facebook, mm-hmm. considering that the game, as you said, the game's on it fairly unstable. And also, like, there's... Whenever a service is free, there's always that... Uh, there's... Whenever a service is free, the thing that is the actual product is people. It means it's people's data. Mm-hmm. So um, the idea of in handing a game company that's just going to analyze all of your stuff, everything you do in a game, and then s- perhaps attempt to sell that to someone else as like advertising or something, mm-hmm. that seems really creepy. To be fair, we already have a company that does that. It's called Valve. Right. But I think, you know, I, I can understand where Notch is coming from, not wanting to release it, not wanting to, you know, not wanting to make this game in the first place. He wasn't even started on it. He just said he was in talks and had just finished those talks. Um, but I, I, I don't really understand the people who are complaining. I've seen more people complain about it being acquired by Facebook, saying that the backers should be mad than I've seen backers actually get mad. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... People had a I notch I not that many people backed it. Yeah, not that many people backed it. And honestly, when it first started up, even John Carmack was looking at it and saying, "Yeah, this the latency in this isn't good enough." Right. And then he eventually decided, "Oh, I'll just make the latency better." But like, let's just stop and think about this for a second. We have now two competing VR headsets: Morpheus, Sony's thing from last week, and and now the Facebook backed Oculus Rift. Literally billions of dollars have been poured into these two machines. Now, when they first announced the Morpheus, they were it, Sony was basically describing this thing as a um, 
a prototype. Like, not even a prototype. It was just something in a testing phase. They didn't even know if they were ever going to sell this. Right. But now they're definitely going to sell it. Oh, no. Now they're they're putting millions into this. Like, they're, they're going to put as much money as they can. They're... But neither of these are anywhere close to being a consumer level. No. We're at least two years away from this. And neither has any final release games, no price, no release date, no launch window. What was, what are they paying $2 billion for? I, I, it has to be... It has to be rapid prototyping. That's the only mm-hmm. thing I can think of. It's being able to quickly transition between multiple versions of the hardware and jumping to a launch product as fast as possible. Right. That is the only thing I can think of. I mean, other than like to make John Carmack like have some really nice plaid shirts, I can't imagine what else <laughs> it would be uh, before. Was it just buy him back the rights to Quake or something? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if VR is the future for games. I really don't think it is. It's I think a future for games. It's a future. I think it is. I, I mean, I remember last time VR was the future for games. Uh, I remember also the last 15 times 3D was the future <laughs> for games. I don't. It, VR is super expensive at the consumer level right now. Mass manufacturing does need that Facebook money. You know, yeah. that to, if, if people actually want Oculus Rifts to be a thing in their homes, Facebook needed to have bought them. Yeah, I that's mean, just straight out. You you got to consider also like the cost of military grade VR headsets, which they've been developing for jets for a very long time. Those individually, those are a billion dollars. Right. Um, now we're not dealing with anything of that that sensitive, but these are technologies that are fairly expensive to build, and we need that manufacturing mm-hmm. money. And I and I a thousand percent believe that like. Even the way Zuckerberg put it, I believe that, like, VR is the future of education and simulation. I mean, it's already the future of simulation. We're already – this is a present of simulation. But we're definitely getting there for education, and I think that's that's super important. But if Zuckerberg genuinely believes this is $2 billion for the future of his social networks and video games, he just wasted $2 billion. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we could we could talk at length about the possibilities of VR, but uh, really we got to head on to making fun of King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, The – so – King. It's our favorite activity. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> so you may remember King, the makers of Candy Crush, um, from the time they tried to trademark the word candy, or the time they cloned most of their games, or the time when they valued themselves at $500 million. That last one in particular is fairly important because they're not worth $500 million, as we've just found out. Yes, they uh, filed their IPO, their initial portfolio offering, uh, and it turns out they're not anywhere close to that. Their stock's open at twenty two fifty, and they close at $19 after hours trading put them down to eighteen fifty, and they are dropping like a rock. <laughs> that 15% drop makes King not only the worst IPO of the year, but also the worst IPO for a company ever valued over $500 million. <laughs> Um, <laughs> investors seem to be looking at Zynga for information on how to treat this stock. Zynga opened at $9 and went up to 14 and then rapidly de- de- deteriorated to 2 I think they're at 4 now. Yeah, they're trading about $4, $4.50 these days, uh, kind of hovering around there. Uh, King CEO Ricardo Zaccone told Gamesbeat he is still confident. Quote, I wouldn't be here if I was not confident. The company has a great future. We are selling a very small amount of stock. We have been around for a long time. This is not unusual from what I have learned. I am super confident. The reason he said super confident makes me think that he is actually crying. Um, at, like, <laughs> he when is it, uh, freaking out. Yeah, yeah. I don't... <laughs> Sorry, King. You had your chance, guys. <laughs> like, you, you guys screwed up. I like... feel like we are being too mean to them, and then I remembered that they tried to sue the Banner Saga guys for calling their game Saga, and then I laughed. <laughs> Yeah, like, honestly, like, that's, these guys were always in over their head, thinking, like, with grand ideas, they looked at, they saw Zynga, and then forgot the part where they massively tanked, mm-hmm. um, and instead, they've been focusing on stuff like, oh, Candy Crush will last forever! But it's not even lasting the week. Uh, if you want to have fun, though, look up the pictures from their IPO, just of, people in giant fruit costumes wandering around the you know the um the the floor of the stock market <laughs> it is the most unsettling thing you'll ever see just a giant strawberry with googly eyes hanging out next to a guy sw- just flop sweating his bald head off <laughs> but speaking of corporate death we have some other death in the news yes um, uh, iron galaxy has developed a killer instinct well, they're developing Killer Instinct. Yeah. It's confusing. Uh, Daryl can murdery. A few weeks ago, Amazon picked up noted shovelware developer Double Helix Studios as part of a shopping spree to pe- prep for their upcoming Android-based console. I say shovelware. They're actually probably best known now for the very well-received Killer Instinct and Strider reboots, which are apparently very good games both. Uh, but they were previously known for The Green Lantern, the movie game, and Battleship, the movie, the game, for which I will never let them live it down. <laughs> the, the neat thing about Killer Instinct is that it was a season-based game, so new characters would be added as 
the season went on, introducing more gameplay depth and rebalancing as they went. Since the game is free to play, a three-player gets access to one character, switching um, depending on which is offered every few weeks. Uh, but the season isn't over, and now that Double Helix is contractually obligated to not work on any game that isn't published by Android, um, somebody else has to take the reins, which... Enter Iron Galaxy, a studio best known in the fighting game scene for developing Dive Kick, the parody fighter that set our uh, dives and kicks aflame. Yeah, so Iron Galaxy has had a long history of basically they've worked on they've worked on kind of a netcode for fighting games. Right. Um, um, they help they help fighting games connect basically like when you're trying to start a match between two fighters online, um, they they help make the latency as uh, thin as possible. Right. And they also I believe developed the uh, recent HD port of Street Fighter 3 as yes. well as the recent ports of Marvel's Capcom Origins, Marvel's Capcom 1 and Marvel Super Heroes and various other, you know, kind of old school Capcom fighting games. Yeah, they're the ones who kind of they they've done a lot of work in fighting games overall. Right. And there's a lot of members of the fighting game community kind of big up in there. Um, They've described this as their biggest project ever, though. Which isn't surprising, considering their biggest project ever before this was Dive Kick. <laughs> I mean, that was... Um, that's the one that took them the longest, and, is, and that is a game of only two buttons. Yeah, and, like, flash animation. Yeah, more or less. The uh, It looks like this could be interesting. I mean... Um, there have been Killer Instinct has been growing a pretty large audience, right? And I've never actually seen another developer take the reins in the middle of a release cycle like this. It does, I mean, it can't happen. It couldn't have happened before because games just didn't have cycles like this. Yeah, but it's I'd, I'd love to see just fighting games are very much often defined by the team that works on them and how they design characters and what they think are characters. And it'll be very interesting to see how different the Iron Galaxy guys take this game from Double Helix. Double Helix is their kind of origins come in, you know, in, in licensed games, but also in shiny entertainment platforms and stuff, very fluid motions. Whereas Double Ga- um, Iron Galaxy seems to come from the fighting game community, but from a lot of Capcom fighters. Yeah, like they've, at the very least, it seems they have a more Street Fighter approach to things. Right. Uh, so it'd be very interesting to see how these new, you know, the characters that are now going to be coming up will be kind of taken. Street Fighter 3 Third Strike yeah. and Marvel vs. Capcom are super different games. Right, but those were just ports. They weren't developing original characters. That's true. You play Dive Kick when they've been developing original characters, and there are some very, very different character types in that game for a game with only two buttons. And they're mostly drawn from Street Fighter and Capcom games. Exactly. Yeah. It's, they're, they're, I don't, they don't really have a lot of kind of Killer Instinct Mortal Kombat influence in them, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where they take this game. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which is weird because the the head of the team, Dave Lang, was at one point um, he worked at Midway um, <laughs> and was fair, at least knew the guys who worked on Mortal Kombat. Right, but I don't think he was actually Mortal Kombat. No, developer. no, no, he was not so, a Mortal Kombat developer. Strange. Um, what's really really weird about this is that doesn't how loose was Double Helix's contract with Microsoft that <laughs> they could just drop out? They mid-season? could just like peace, bye. <laughs> I mean. That's just a weird contractual obligation to say, hey, look, you have to um, support this game for the rest of its life, which, I mean, I have to imagine they were at least contractually obligated for at least, like, one season or X amount of characters or, like, X amount of months, right? Yeah, I'm surprised that Microsoft didn't just hand this off to another internal studio or something and just right. say, or, like, get like say, hey, Double Helix, like, just work on this for another few months. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a kind weird... Kind of deal with Amazon or something. Yeah. I'm glad they gave it to an actual fighting game developer. No, that was the smart... I mean, if you're going to give it to anyone, you needed someone who has some actual expertise in this. Yeah. Providing are a very specific To be genre. fair, Seth Killian just left uh, Sony Santa Monica along with half the goddamn game development world. So, <sighs> Well, Seth Killian went to Riot Games, if I'm not mistaken. No, he's, gone, he's not gone anywhere, I don't He's think. not gone anywhere? As far as I understand, he's a free agent. Oh, okay. So I knew someone, someone has been... Someone left... No, no. The no, guy who, Naughty, Naughty Dog. Dog. Yeah. He went to Riot Games, the yeah. director of Uncharted 4. So uh, people are bailing from Sony Studios left and right. I don't understand what's going on there. Anyway, but yeah, Double Helix. Um... The uh, this uh, this this uh, this could be good. I yeah. mean, this could be a this could be. A, I didn't. Li- I mean, I played Killer Instinct uh, at a demo event a, a couple months ago before the Xbox One came out, and I thought it was a perfectly serviceable fighting game. It's become really popular in the fighting game scene uh, among uh, Mortal Kombat people looking for a slightly deeper game. So, yeah. sure, listen, hey, cool and good for Iron Galaxy. I love Dive Kick, so we yeah. all love you know Dive Kick is a good game. Yeah, it's a really great party game if you're looking for something. If you're looking for something to play while drinking. Yeah, <laughs> speaking of drinking. Um, Apparently, 3D Realms, the inventor of Duke Nukem, still exists. Somehow. Uh, if you'll remember, in 2000... Well, if you'll remember, in 1999, they announced Duke Nukem Forever, which is going to be the first fully 3D Duke Nukem game. Um, that game came out in 2012 after they gave up on it and handed it off to Gearbox, the developers of Borderland, who released it in its... Um, they basically released it as the unmitigated trash heap we all knew it was going to be. I mean... 
let, let, we can go back even further and basically say that Duke Nukem was a it was kind of a Arnold Schwarzenegger parody coming out of the 80s that had whose hallmark was hey look you can interact with this thing and he swears yeah like look I can make this it's a chalkboard and I can make a line on the chalkboard with right. Duke Nukem holy crud it's amazing he, he punched a toilet um <laughs> 3D Realms then uh, slinked back into the dark corner they were hiding in for the last 14 years, and George Roussard didn't say anything. Well, is George Roussard involved in any of this? Yes, George Roussard still works at 3D Realms. He can... How would they have money? How do they have... Well, to be fair, I guess it's all his poker winnings, because uh, (laughs) that is literally all he has done instead of working on a game for the last little while. But uh, until earlier this year, when Gearbox filed a suit against 3D Realms for daring to want to release a new Duke Nukem game. Uh, Named Duke Nukem Mass Destruction, the game is an isometric action role-playing game for PC and PlayStation 4. Uh, 3D Realms and their new owner, Interceptor, which also owns Apogee Games. So I guess they're just going around buying old PC developers who aren't relevant. Uh, Planned on releasing the game in February, which, if you haven't noticed, was a while ago. (laughs) Because I sure didn't. I, I, I don't... I don't... Okay, so Gearbox, who now technically owns the Duke Nukem IP, released Duke Nukem Forever. I mean, they've sent a cease and desist, right? Right, and they told them to stop using the Duke Nukem IP. They also claim that they have signed proof that 3D Realms CEO Scott Miller and his partner George Broussard, creator of Duke Nukem, signed a breach notice agreeing not to use the IP. Of course, this week, 3D Realms fired back... Uh, saying that it is our position that the trademark for Duke Nukem was never assigned to Gearbox and remains the sole property of 3D Realms. That's insane. What, what? Are, they, what are they doing? Like, that doesn't make... I can't understand why they would do this. This is just... Like, who cares... One, who cares about Duke Nukem? Two, who who cares about 3D Realms? Three, <laughs> how do they have money? Who is crazy enough to hand George Broussard a wad of cash? When, a, he ha- when he took him 15 years to not make a video game. Like, George Broussard literally only gets money by clawing it away from <laughs> k- poker fiends. Last year, 3D Realms sued Gearbox over unpaid royalty fees over Duke Nukem Forever, quickly dro- dropping the suit. Uh, it's possible that this burned Gearbox in the relationship with 3DR, but it's more likely that the situation is weird and confusing and makes no sense. <laughs> Why would you want the Duke Nukem IP in the first place? <laughs> it is utter garbage. It has no name recognition except for being that game that didn't come out for 10 years and then was utter garbage. It was it was a game that was very clear. Like, you play Duke Nukem Forever and you realize, oh, this game clearly took 10 years to make because it has these um, these mechanics that are 10 years old. And 15 we're never, years old. 15 years old and were never upgraded. I can't even understand this. Speaking of incomprehensibility, let's get to our chicken-loving... <laughs> Finger-licking <laughs> bonus round. Yeah, World-famous down-home. Bonus Secret round. Season the Spices. I make sure to secretly season the spice this five minutes before the show when I write it. <laughs> so, bonus rounds. All right. Bonus round is basically we go through a whole bunch of little pieces of news that don't make a lot of sense but are too crazy to ignore. So, Daniel, what do we have in store this week? We have the Atari Landfill. So, according to the Almogordo Daily News, the New Mexico Environmental Department has canceled the excavation of the landfill where thousands of ET cartridges for the Atari 2600 were reportedly buried after the game was a huge bomb. Uh, the dig is set, said to be the subject. Uh, the dig is scheduled to be the subject of an upcoming uh, documentary from a Canadian studio, and it is exclusive to Xbox One and Xbox 360. So figure that one out. Uh, and executive producers say the dig is still on. The rejection was too generic. Of course, the state isn't letting them dig, so they aren't digging. So it's not on. <laughs> I <laughs> just the background. Uh, 2600 ET was infamous for having more cartridges produced than 2600s existed, uh, and was cited as the reason for the early video game, the video game crash of the early 80s. It isn't, but it's a terrible game that was overproduced. It's the Jimmy Hoffa of video games buried in a secret landfill. I mean, it, it, Atari didn't die because of ET. Atari died because it had a. Mo- it, most of the lineup, the late lineup for the Atari 2600. Because it was a mismanaged company and there were approximately 10 billion Atari games coming out and most of them were hot garbage. Yes, like that that was what killed the industry. Not not E.T. Although and, it is a very nice story. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that there's this landfill that exists. I really hope E.T.s are buried under there. The story is mostly apocryphal right now. I mean, the fun extra fact to all this is that uh, it turns out that... Um, what was it? Uh the other problem is that there's some nuclear radiation coming oh, from the ground. Great. Um, great. There's uh so you know it's like it, that Futurama episode where they go to the landfill the uh, the planet of trash where it's just a bunch of Bart Simpson dolls. <laughs> just remnants of the eighties. 
Well, as long as we've got trash on the mind. Um, what's up with Leland Yee? Leland Yee is a California senator best known for in gaming spheres for trying to enact various laws against video game violence. He is much better known for wanting to impose very strict restrictions on gun and gun sales, which is, you know, an actual problem, video game people. Yeah, yeah. Um... However, it turns out he is an in-between for an arms dealer and would, ap- <laughs> would approach for an under- by an undercover FBI agent pretending to be a mob boss looking for weapons. He offered him shoulder-mounted rocket launchers and rifles equivalent to the American military standard, <laughs> military standard M16s. <laughs> what? What? I, like, I, I literally cannot comprehend that. Like, I, I don't... His life is Grand Theft Auto, and he was just mad at violent video games for not being realistic enough. Do you think, no, 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 do you think that Leland Yee was, like, afraid of Grand Theft Auto for giving away his life? Like, do you think that they had, like, they had accidentally dropped in on his... He didn't want anybody to own assault weapons, except for him. (laughs) And the people he sold to. And the people he sold to. um, Revolutionary fronts in the Philippines, I believe. Oh, like, what the... I can't... He's a senator! Like, what? Like, well, not anymore. I believe he resigned from his position after this came out. <laughs> uh, that's, like, not only is he, a, like, not only is he a hypocrite, he is a GTA character. It is insane. Like, I, I, oh, okay, this is awesome. <laughs> this is I, I honestly, I read the story. This wasn't going to be here because I'm like, okay, he's just a, one of the crazy people who hates violent video games. It's not important. And then his life is Grand Theft Auto. No, his life is Saints Row. <laughs> I can't, I literally cannot I can't, I can't take this like this you could not make up a story this stupid That's it for news. This week on Book to Play, we're talking Love, Life, and the Games Developers Conference. Starting with the developer, composer, and writer of To the Moon, Ken Gao. I'm, uh, my name's Ken, uh, also known as uh, Reeves Online. Uh, so I run a uh, studio called, indie game studio called uh, Freebird Games, which is uh, mostly just me sitting in my bedroom working on my, in my pajamas. I guess like the game that um, came out for Freebird Games was uh, To the Moon, which was released uh, a couple years ago. I kind of got the just for the base of the game um, when my grandpa kind of fell ill um, some years ago, and he had to do a, uh, go through a surgery at the time. And fortunately, he's actually fine now. I actually just came back from uh, visiting them uh, in China just literally a couple of weeks ago, um, and there he's doing uh, he's doing fine now, fortunately. Um, but at the time, you know, that was actually one of my uh, first close encounters with uh, death in a close family. Um, so it kind of got me to think about uh, a lot about, um, you know, those have to do with having lived a life. And, you know, if I were in his shoes one day, which I will be, uh, you know, on my deathbed and looking back at the life I led, um, I would <laughs> I would probably wonder if there's anything I regretted or, you know, things I wanted to change. and. I think usually people, that's, you're more likely than not to have those things, you know. Um, So they kind of spawn from there. It's an adventure game, done up to look like a classic Super Nintendo RPG. It has the simple 2D art of Chrono Trigger or a Final Fantasy. You play as two doctors whose job it is to rewrite the memories of their patients, but there are a few complications. We'll let Can explain. It's a game about these two doctors um, tra- traversing backwards through a patient's memories uh, in order to fulfill his last wish. And his last wish is to go to the moon. It all comes together to be this tragic, sometimes heartbreaking love story that you experience backwards. You see Johnny Wilde's wife die, and then you follow his memories back to the first time they met. Warning, this is an entirely story-focused game, so it's hard to talk about To the Moon without a few spoilers. Do yourself a favor and play the game if you haven't already. It's kind of, to the Moon is, in, in, in some ways, a love story, but what, it make, what makes it interesting is that it's told in reverse, at least to me. It, it, it's interesting that the, kind of the, way, the, the way the story is told that way. Do you, do you think mm-hmm. part of the impact is from the way it's told in that kind of reverse order? Um, I 
Yeah, you know, you, now that you mention it in a lot of ways, I think that that's true, um, especially because uh, I think one of the more um, uh, parts of the game that really gives it momentum and kind of starts it uh, going on the actual, uh, you know, emotional side of things, if, <laughs> if that were the case, uh, is from when the last hour of the game, um, where, you know, the entire first two parts of the game, like the three hours of the game, uh, actually starts to make sense. I personally think uh, what gives uh, video games the edge in that, um, like in, like to the moon perhaps, kind of story, is that um, with something that requires a lot of memorization of what and when each item is and what they mean. Um, like for example, even with Memento, it's oftentimes I think a lot of people have to watch it uh, multiple times to uh, have a clearer picture of what's going on to you know chain together events and all that um, but with something like video games where you are an active participant instead of passive uh, viewer um, even if by little things like walking around and just simply clicking on and spotting and, and spotting on and clicking on each of the mementos uh, I really think that brings everything a lot clearer into the memory of the actual you know audience and player and when the time comes when they need to recall recall all the things to chain them up together to make sense of the plot, um, that has a definite edge. Ken is also the composer. Writing lets him create the game's plot, and designing lets him control how you experience it, but it's his music that infuses his simple art and gameplay with emotion. Like for To the Moon, for example, um, the graphics are decades old, you know, and you cannot see any expressions or, any, well, you get some expressions, but, you know, like the face is 16 by 16 pixels wide or so, if even. Um, so you can't really show that much through that. So essentially music carries the entire almost uh, burden for conveying the specific mood, you know, and it says what any text cannot uh, within re- reasonable limits. So it's definitely crucial. And from like my own perspective too, like when I make the games, sometimes I would get stuck on a serious uh, writer's block, you know, and uh, I just stare at the screen for what goes on for who knows how long. Um, but then what really helps with that when that happens is then I go to write the music for it. After I write the music for it, um, I listen to it as I write the scene and suddenly it's so much easier. So it's almost like this buffer between what's in your head and what you want to convey um, outward. There's actually, I mean, one song in the soundtrack that's always sticks out to me, I mean, and I think purposely so, is, is For River, which kind of plays throughout the game. Um, what, what goes into making something that you need to be that iconic? What I think, like the one particular thing I personally think that was uh, special about that track uh, compared to the rest of the soundtrack uh, was the two notes motif. It's just like a repetitive pattern of like da 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 and it just goes on and sometimes you know hidden on through different layers um, of the piece but that to me was personally um, important because of well there's this you know uh, theme with the uh, autistic spectrum in the game right and one of the characters is um, is on that spectrum, and that that theme in particular, like the like the two notes nature, it was you know in many ways meant for um, like a pretentious metaphor <laughs> for um, you know that theme of the story um, transcribed into music, but. Uh, not sure. I'm not really sure how that came through, but personally, to me, that's uh, what the importance of that piece was. How how would you, I guess, describe that that metaphor being the repetitive nature? Uh, it's almost a gesture to, like, compared to, well, say, River's behavior in the game, where she keeps on making that um, the rabbits, you know, and um, repetition is often uh, one of the um, behaviors of you know folks with uh, on the spectrum it's um, and for River personally that's it kind of goes beyond that it's also you know what essentially leads up to um, the beginning of the story or like the end or the beginning chronologically um, so there was a specific meaning to that to her behavior and I think it was just something that mirrored 
um, what went on in the story in that sense. That's why his next game is entirely music-based, with no dialogue at all. Can decided to stick with his strengths and hone the emotional core. While a bird story is not, you know, technically episode two, it's a standalone story about it's it's, it's the simplest story can be. Really, there's no plot twist. There's anything I could. I'm summarizing the story to you right now. It's literally about a boy who finds a bird uh, with a broken wing and he nurses it. He tries to nurses it back to health, and you know that's the entire story essentially. But uh, so it's totally a lot more. Uh, it's very different from the nature of a story like To the Moon, and there's no, there's zero dialogue, essentially. Um, but the episode two, the patient in the next episode, um, that's equivalent to To the Moon, the patient is who that little boy in A Bird Story grows up to be. Do you think there's going to, be, I guess, be a stronger focus on the music to portray those emotions effectively? Yeah, actually, definitely. <laughs> I'm, it's actually a kind of a different ex- approach to, for the music side of things uh, compared to to the moon. Too, as to the moon still used a lot of. Uh, I mean, it's uh, more you know background music just constantly on uh, looping for each memory. It's just, it's almost like there's one uh, looping background music for one each memory, right? Uh, whereas a bird story, it uses a lot more um, short music cues um, for you know like specific moments and the like. Uh, unfortunately, that means on the soundtrack, a lot of the tracks are like 30 seconds long. <laughs> uh, but on the plus side, I do think that um, leads to a lot more, uh, you know, customized mood. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but... <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, the opportunity. Gao is the founder of Freebird Games and the designer of To The Moon. You can find it on Steam and check out freebirdgames.com for updates on a bird store. So, speaking about love, we've always wondered, what makes a game character attractive? Specifically, what makes a character you can fall in love with in a game worthy of romance? We weren't thinking this because we're basement-dwelling 15-year-olds who fear female touch, though that does bring up a good point. In real life, you're attractive if you have the right look, the right attitude, and the right hand gestures. Or so I've been told. But in the game, you're not you, thankfully. And people in the game aren't really people. They have program responses and are hooked into a complex narrative. So we asked an expert, what makes for an attractive character? If you look at Match.com, right, they have a survey asking you a whole bunch of questions about yourself. And then they ask you a whole bunch of questions about a person that you would want to partner with. And it's in a case like that where you are presenting yourself as though you're on your best behavior because you want other people to find you attractive. Um, And then there are those qualities that you would seek out in a partner. And so what I thought was, wouldn't it be interesting to use the same adjectives that Match.com uses in those questionnaires and apply them to game romances and see, you know, do people find these qualities attractive in real life? Do they find them attractive in RPG characters? Heidi McDonald studies the way we look at romance in games and has found that based on her survey, Bioware games have the hottest bots. I, I, I mean most romantic non-player characters. Here's the thing. Some of the characters in the games that I've been attracted to are pretty messed up people. I mean, they're, they're violent and they're evil. And I would never, you know, date a person like that in real life. And so I was like, what, what is so alluring about that? So I went in and I asked people to rank all the different adjectives in terms of, is this attractive to me in real life? Is this attractive to me in a game character? Uh, Is this the way I identify myself in real life? Is this a way that I uh, identify my RPG avatar whenever I'm playing a game? And I found a couple of really interesting things with that. Um, I found that men tend to play characters that are more violent and more aggressive than they are able to be in real life. And I noticed that women tend to play uh, characters who are more like themselves in real life. Uh, so basically you have men who don't experiment as much with romance, but any experimentation they do, they experiment more with their avatar. Whereas women will play an avatar that's more like who they are in real life, 
but they will experiment much more wildly with romance options. And there were a few descriptors that were universally said by people to be not very attractive. And one of them was religious, and uh, one of them was fragile or wimpy. Um, nobody wants their in-game romance to be helpless. They, they want a character who will be able to hold their own in a fight and can fight beside them instead of necessarily having to save the bot all the time. So those were the two that came up as, um, if you're going to use these at all, you should do it very, very carefully because people, people aren't attracted to that. However, ones that got a whole lot of response, um, adventurous, funny, uh, brave, uh, having, having high morals, you know, good conviction, like whatever their belief is, they're fully committed to the beliefs that they hold. So those were the ones that were cited as the, the ones that were considered the most attractive in an RPG character. And based on the character uh, descriptors that were most attractive, uh, it would appear that most people would prefer a love interest like Isabella from Dragon Age 2 because she had most of those qualities. So is, who else would kind of fit in that, um, would, I guess, would get a whole lot of winks on Match.com? <laughs> um, um, I'll tell you that uh, the number one favorite male romanceable RPG of all time was Alistair from Dragon Age Origins. I wanted to wait for the perfect time, the perfect place, but when will it be perfect? If things were, we wouldn't even have met. We sort of stumbled into each other. And despite this being the least perfect time, I still found myself falling for you in between all the fighting and everything else. I really don't want to wait anymore. Um, with Caden from Mass Effect up pretty far up there too. And on the female side, it was absolutely Morrigan from Dragon Age Origins. Um, with Ashley from Mass Effect and a few others under that. But the, but the two from Dragon Age were far and away the most popular romanceable characters. Um, when I asked why uh, they were attracted to the character in the game, a lot of people said that, you know, the voice acting and the way the character looks has something to do with it. But 93% of the people who play these romances do so because of the story. That, that character has an interesting story they want to follow and they want to see how the rest of the narrative changes based on their relationship with the character. So I don't know if that means uh, if you write the stuff, people are going to play it or people are going to play it because it's there. So that's Dragon Age, Mass Effect, and Knights of the Old Republic. BioWare tends to make games where the player's choices are important. They also have games with a fairly strong diversity of characters and personalities. So if you're looking for a game with a solid romantic storyline, the game about a chosen one fighting demon dragons might be your best bet. I like the way that BioWare handles it because it's not just cut and dry. There are cases where romance is complicated and it involves very complex choices and you know, character problems that arise as a result of who you are and who that character is. I think Bioware does things very, very well. I think they could do better in terms of representation. Um, but I do think that they are the best right now in the industry. Coincidentally, two weeks ago, one romantic plotline was a success. On March 20th, Heidi McDonald married her husband, Alex McPherson. Uh, well, I went to GDC for the first time in 2012, and I went as a conference associate. Um, the conference associate program is just a really, really wonderful place to be. It's, you know, students and aspiring developers in the community can volunteer their time and, you know, volunteer like 20 to 40 hours during the conference. And in return, you get a free access pass to all the different goings-on at the conference. And I was just starting out in gaming at that point, and I thought, wow, you know, that could be such a wonderful opportunity, you know, for me to meet people and learn things and such. So I went, and when I was there, I met another conference associate named Alex McPherson, and we got to be friends and so forth, and we kept in touch the whole time. 
Well, two years later, we're engaged to be married. He moved from California to be with me. <laughs> and so we now both make our home in Pittsburgh. And we were trying to figure out, all right, you know, when and where should we get married? And it occurred to us when we came up with a list of everyone we wanted to invite that most of our friends are also game developers. And if we had the wedding here in Pittsburgh, it would require a lot more travel. Whereas if we had the wedding in San Francisco during the GDC, everybody would be there anyway, and we'd only have to fly three people to San Francisco. So it made a lot of logistical sense. And the next thing we did was thought, you know, wouldn't that be great if we had all of our CA friends around us when we got married? And I wonder if they'd let us do that. So. We went to UBM and we asked their permission because we know that you know other people maybe have wanted to do this, but for whatever reason, there's never been anybody to do this before. So we went to UBM and we told them our story and they really um, very graciously came back to us and said that, yeah, we will totally allow you to do this. <laughs> and we were just completely overjoyed. Um, I also have to give a big shout out to Ian McKenzie, who's the manager of the conference associate program. And between those two folks, um, we got this this really great ceremony that we're putting together that's going to occur on the Thursday night at GDC um, in one of the conference rooms. Can you give us an idea of how the ceremony is going to look? Um, well, we are both game developers, so you can be assured that there are going to be video game references in there. Um, we are also going to have at least one uh, one thing that the audience votes on. We're going to have two people there that at the start of the ceremony, the audience gets to vote on which one of these two people joins the wedding party. And that affects something at the end of the wedding. And then we have like other little gamey elements <laughs> here and there but that's that's going to be the big one is the audience getting to pick a member of the bridal party in real time so very much like a mass effect dialogue option yeah it, or like an mmo like um when you have to choose your party <laughs> that's the beginning <laughs> right um you get to choose a member of the bridal party <laughs> <laughs> um how's it like coordinating this thing I'm feeling a little bit like an air traffic controller right now <laughs> because uh, we, you know, we, we have an awful lot of things going on and everybody has to know everything that's supposed to happen in the order that it happens and how their part in it relates and where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do. Um, the dress code at the wedding, for example, we don't have a dress code. We want people to wear whatever they're wearing to GDC. So yeah, that means I'll, we're going to be surrounded by a sea of conference associates wearing traffic cone orange t-shirts. But that's part of the charm of doing it at GDC, right? Everybody gets together to celebrate gaming and games and our connections with each other and that's what it was all about for us when we met and that's what GDC and the conference associate program are all about for us as well so we're just really excited about it all right well, I want to wish you the best of luck and thanks again so much for taking the time to talk to me oh no problem whatsoever I hold my breath until sunrise just to gaze into those blue eyes I rewash on my pounds it makes me weak in the knees you're roughly shirt and tight white pants you blow our minds Congratulations, Heidi, and to your husband. Heidi McDonald is a game designer at Shell Games, and she's working on a new romantic option survey. With GDC on the mind, let's talk about the only thing that matters at a week-long game design convention. Parties! Google had a party in which they gave out vodka Capri Suns and fresh cookies. There is the party no one can talk about, and there's also the party no one wants to talk about. And then there's the Wild Rumpus. The Wild Rumpus is somewhere between a sweet rave party and a museum exhibition. They showcase games that are meant to be played while inebriated, with friends, and with loud music in the background. On the fifth anniversary of the Hand-Eye Society, they ran the Fancy Video Game Party. It was Toronto's biggest game party ever and sold out within two weeks. The Wild Rumpus held it at Toronto's most prestigious art center, the Art Gallery of Ontario. We had a chance to sit down with George about how to run a party and where to find the right kind of games to play while slightly swaying side to side. Basically, we put on parties. We put on a bit of parties, kind of club night style parties, where we show a bunch of kind of 
um, indie games with like a, a real sense of spectacle to them, usually like uh, local multiplayer games. Um, and there's usually dancing, there's usually like people playing live and some dancing and some, some kind of fun games like that. And alcohol is al- almost always involved. Um, yeah, so we put these on and we've been put, put on a bunch of them. We've put up, had five in London where we're based. Um, we've just now come over and ran one in Toronto um, just last week. That was the fancy video game party. Oh, that's right, yeah, which we did in collaboration with the Hand-Eye Society and the AGO. How did that come around? Um, so basically, the, the, the origin of it um, is that Marie, who is, who, is, who is one of the Wild Rumpus organizers um, and is the one who does most of the work, to be honest, um, decided to, to kind of stretch her legs and decided to uh, even get this kind of one-year visa that allows you to travel around. So she decided to come over, over to Canada kind of settled in Toronto and obviously obviously knew of knew of hand eye society knew of these people from from doing stuff internationally in the past and from you know being aware of it um and so when she came over they started talking and kind of said hey yeah it would be a cool idea to do something together and um so when you're putting together one of these events, what are the, the main things you're, th- you're thinking of? Like, what makes a good spectacle, what makes a good party? So the way we kind of curate the games for it is, is like I said, look, we, we look for stuff that is kind of makes a good spectacle, makes stuff that you want a game that you can kind of, nothing you need to kind of learn how to play, nothing that's kind of difficult or complex to kind of get into. You need something that you can pretty much understand how to play it by watching someone else play it, because most of the time before you play it, you're standing around and watching somebody else play. You want something that you can pick up pretty quickly, Something that, um, yeah, produces a good spectacle. Something that's as fun to spectate as it is to play. Um, so an example of this that isn't actually wasn't actually from the fancy video game party, but from a previous one. Um, again, that some friends of ours, at Lucky Frame, made called Ruffle Pillar. And the way you play this is you lie down, both of you on your backs, kind of head to head, and you stick your heads inside a little kind of chalet that they've made out of cardboard. And once you put your head in. You kind of can see the screen, and the screen is above you. And on that, there's projected uh, the image of you as a caterpillar. Um, and you're kind of bottom half of your body, your legs are in a kind of bag. Um, and then there's a, a con- like a basically, like, is this kind of controller from the 90s? Uh, called a game track, which was an early kind of motion control one, which operates instead of, you know, using fancy kind of accelerometers or anything, it operates with a bit of string. <laughs> and it can tell what direction the bit of string has been pulled and how far it's been pulled out. So there's a bit of string attached to you. And the way you play it is you uh, need to wiggle around and pick up all the apples by wiggling your hips to, from side to side. And like and like the game, the game itself, like uh, I'm sure they don't mind saying, is isn't like a, a masterpiece of game design. But the fact that you have to lie on lie on your back and get into a into a kind of multi multicolored like cocoon and stick your head inside a small chalet, um, and then and then whilst you're playing it, you're wiggling around, you're wiggling your hips frantically whilst people watch. Like that's 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 really genius. That's really great. Um, I mean. That sounds like that. That sounds like a lot of fun, but it also sounds like a lot of work to kind of set up. I mean, what kind of um, are are a lot of these games stuff that kind of require a lot of extra prop work or extra kind of in, just stuff to build around them? Um, yeah, so like a bunch of them are, and like we would like to have more like that. I mean, that one itself was was fine because luckily some of the guys from Lucky Rome came down and set it up for us um, which was why we had like all the beautifully painted cardboard they had but yeah so we've, we've got a bunch of that kind of stuff like um, at the fancy video game party we had and we've had a couple of others um, splintercades which are like a couple of pallets stacked up the hole sawn through and the screen in there so you're kind of standing around looking down on this on this thing um, this this originally happened a couple of wild rumpuses ago in London when a friend of ours uh, June um, June June I'm pretty sure that's how you say his name. Uh, came over and with about after having about 24 hours in London, uh, ended up putting putting this together and bringing it to our thing in order to show his game off. It came off better, and we're like, fantastic! That's that's beautiful. This is amazing. Let's do it again. And we've we've ripped off the idea and done a bunch of other things. Who are you trying to attract when you to, to these events? Are you looking to bring new people into games, or are you trying to bring traditional gamers in and kind of open up their perspectives? Um, 
so I mean I don't I don't think we're trying to appeal to traditional gamers at all. Obviously, but I mean we're, we're I mean obviously if they want to come along and enjoy enjoy it, then that, that's perfectly perfectly welcome at all. I mean I think we've kind of got a bit of a of a split, a bit of an identity crisis as to as to whether we're appealing to people who already love this stuff and giving them an outlet and like a, a sense of community and a kind of sense of place and it's like hey it's the games that you're excited about we're excited about them too and p- putting them on and it's a cool party you know that's a, that's a lovely feeling and reaching out to people who who aren't from games at all and saying hey yeah like video games they're not like this is this is kind of the, some of the cool stuff that they can do here's some of the cool stuff that that happens within them like this is this is the stuff we're excited about um you're probably excited about some of this stuff too like some of this at least you should find funny or or stupid or like appealing in some way and so yeah like that's that's i guess that's just like those are kind of the two audiences we're kind of split between um but i think we're doing an increasingly poor job of appealing to the latter um as the as the ranks of the former get larger is um do you find that conflicting yeah yeah but i mean it's it's also hmm. So yeah, to- like it totally is, and it's like a, something that would nice. It would be much. It would be great to do better at, in terms of appealing to to that kind of second group. Um, but at the same time, the first group already know that they want to give us money for to go to these events, um, and there's enough of them often to to sell out the events. So it's 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 difficult to turn down people who want to give you money for doing a thing that you enjoy doing. Um, because we need, because as as the scale has kind of increased, the costs of renting the venues and getting the tech and stuff in for it obviously increases at the same time. Could you? Well, how much did the fancy video game party cost? Could you? Do you know offhand? Uh, I don't know offhand. No. Yeah. Um, well, could you give me a comparison of like the difference in scale, at least in cost, between when you guys started and kind of the events you're doing now? Uh, well, so I mean, like in terms of in terms of numbers of people there, the first one we probably had. 150 people there over the course of the evening and the fancy video game party was was 600 people 600 tickets sold so like it's it's like you know kind of four times the size there and obviously instead of being crammed into like an actually fairly small bar instead it was laid out over the over the couple of floors of the ago um so yeah like it's kind of increased in in scale a fair bit there um yeah the uh, what do you guys do? You guys see yourselves as curators at all? Yeah, sure. Like that's a. I mean, that's a word I. Yeah, that's a word I, a word I use. Um, we didn't realize we were doing curation when we started the events. I mean, like if we stopped and thought, we'd be like, eh, I guess we're curating. But like that wasn't that wasn't it wasn't our intent to become curators. We just wanted to put on a cool event, and then we're like, all right, so you need to pick the games you're going to put on and then and then you realize oh yeah this is curation this is this is kind of a core part of it is is curation and putting on the event and kind of defining defining the the kind of parameters of the event um so yeah like we are and and it's 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 interesting especially like that there are more and more event organizers um and it feels like there's a, a small kind of community of people who run events and run kind of communities and, and who have kind of similar interests in this and that's that feels cool, and that feels, yeah, slightly strange as well. What are some of your favorite your favorite events that you've run so far? Hmm. Well, it was that one we did on that ex Cold War fishing vessel. That was pretty good. <laughs> I think we need to know about this. Uh, so yeah, this is one that we did in, in London. Um, I guess coming up for about a year ago. Um, yeah, so like, so I mean, we were we were planning on having another wild rumpus like so, sometime soon. Um, yeah, so we were we were going to organize an event anyway, and then we heard that this boat was in town and that we could possibly get a slot. And suddenly we're like, right, well, let's let's definitely see if we can accelerate the process and hurry along into it. Um, yeah, and it yeah. Well, so what did the vessel kind of look like from the from when you're on it? Like so, so like as you're approaching it, it's it's like a, it's a ship. It's actually a fairly sizable ship. Um, and then once you get on it, you're kind of on on the deck deck of the ship. And so it's an ex Cold War fishing vessel. And and kind of the story goes that they were decommissioning all of those fleets because I think they were only only economically viable due to massive kind of Soviet subsidies. 
of of the and so of the reunification happened there was no real money to, money to run it anymore so so they kind of scrapped off all of this stuff and as a result all of these ships were getting sold off cheap and somebody saw those and went ah oh, I'll have one of them because as they're getting sold off cheap um, uh, and kind of converted it into kind of a floating arts venue that kind of sails around Europe. Um, but the, I mean, the, the the ridiculous thing then is he's like obviously running an arts venue doesn't make you a lot of money, and so I think twice he's uh, went bankrupt, um, <laughs> and both times the uh, creditors have looked at the ship and went, "Nah, you can keep it. <laughs> I don't really want that." Um, but yeah, so it's, 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 it's this amazing kind of vessel, and like so we, we ended up playing JS Joust, which was um, in one of the holds of that, and that was this kind of amazing experience. Like this room with like a capacity of like a couple of hundred people, all kind of crammed in, like in a metal, like, you know, obviously in a kind of metal room with like all these pipes, pipes up against the wall, playing JS Joust, and it, it felt like a real kind of, I don't know, like um, futuristic or like sci- sci-fi dystopia, playing a future sport involving like shoving and physical violence, whilst there's a crowd cheering everyone on kind of standing around in this dimly lit like metal room it's kind of a context collapse <laughs> i'm so i'm so sad that we never got any like great pictures that kind of captured captured that spirit of it but it was, it was yeah it was amazing all right george thank you so much for your time <laughs> you're welcome thanks thanks for having me on it's been a pleasure george buckingham is one of the founders of the wild rumpus Their event at GDC was called the Mild Rumpus. You can find their events all over the world. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armie Gwali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built a play who was made with the help of... Kendo. Heidi McDonald. And uh, George Buckingham. For extended versions of the interview you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing. Uh, and more people can find the show. But leave a positive review, because if you leave a negative review, we'll strap a VR headset on your face and make you search Facebook for the rest of your life. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and we run every Monday and Thursday at 1 p.m. as well. Plus, check out our website for a theme month. Why do we open up worlds? This week, a look at getting lost and living in an open world. And we update every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, my birthday's this weekend and I'm really looking for a rocket launcher. Thank you so much for listening.